0: And he said, I'm going to let him go ahead and wrestle tonight. The ref will let us do it if he wears a bathing cap. But he said, my wrestlers don't wrestle in bathing caps. So there they are, I'm sitting in the stands, and I'm watching this little kid of mine who is now 16, and all of his teammates, these darling young boys, you know, many of whom I teach or will teach, you know, they're trying to get this bathing cap over these dreadlocks. I mean, it was just unbelievable, and a lot of the varsity wrestlers, you know, are sitting up with me, and they're all going, we're just going to have to cut his hair next week, and they think it's so darling and cute, and this is what I think, how humiliating
1: alcoholism is,
0: how humiliating this is, because this little boy who loves to wrestle is now trying to pull this bathing cap over his head, and they put his headgear on, and his little girlfriend comes to watch him. And what happened is what I knew would happen. The bathing cap starts to ride up <laughs> over his head, and his little things start to sprout out. Pops off his headgear, and the ref has to blow his whistle, and they start all over again. And all of his little teammates come, and they pull down. And, you know, I thought, look how easy enabling becomes when, when it's somebody that's really darling. You know, oh, this whole team comes on the floor, and they're all coming down a little platform. And all the 1st wrestlers are laughing with me, and they are laughing, and they're like, you know, isn't this is cute? And I'm, and I'm seeing I don't think that it's cute. I think to myself, God is bringing me to a point of powerlessness. This is is not good. And now I'm at the end. And now I'm at the end. So, of course, he loses the match, rips off the headgear, throws it across the floor, and does not come home that night. But see, God, that whole thing brings me to a point where I know I have this wick, and it's a really long wick. I just happened to be one of those people that has a really long wick. But when I reach the end of it, I'm at the end of it. So I said to him, You gotta go. You gotta go. Now we gotta do something here. Oh, just put me in a different school, Mom. Oh, I'll I'll go back to AA. Put me in a different school. I'll go back to AA. I'll have you can give me urine tests once a week. And I said, You know? I'm not a lab technician. I'm not doing that. I'm done. We gotta do something here. And so my whole Christmas break these past two weeks, those past this from December the twentieth until January the sixth, spent a lot of time on the phone calling friends, people that I knew in AA, Al Anon, back and forth, trying to find some place um, to put this child of mine. My life is unmanageable whenever I lose my perspective about what is and what is not my responsibility. I am not responsible for my child's disease, but as a parent, I am responsible for my child. And so I needed to take action and be willing to let go of the results, that I know. And I also believe that Step 2 tells me that I have come, over these years, I have come to believe in the power greater than myself that can restore me to sanity. Our book says the alcoholic cannot heal our wounds, neither can our willpower, quick-wittedness, or perseverance that is absolutely the opposite of everything I ever believed growing up. I always thought willpower, quick-wittedness, and perseverance fixed everything. But in this case, it cannot. It cannot heal my wounds. Only, I believe, a loving and compassionate God who is most mostly I experience through you and people who love me unconditionally in my life have been able to do that for me. Watching and listening you has done more to restore me to sanity than anything I've ever done on my own watching and listening to you over the years as you have shown me how to do to, to, to really live these steps and change your lives and you've been willing to show up even though you met you know active alcoholism for you may be something of the past you continue to show up on cold mornings on rainy nights, And that has done so much for me in really believing that I too can be restored to sanity.
1: You know, there is something very
0: powerful for me in the we of all these steps. The we. You know, we admitted we were powerless. We came to believe. That fellowship and that shoulder-to-shoulder that I believe that we share to me is the real punch of this program. Not that everything worked out for you because maybe it didn't. Not that your marriage just grew stronger and better because maybe it didn't for you, but the fact that shoulder to shoulder, however things happened, we walked together. That's what really brought me to a tremendous sense of peace, and just and just has, and just has. This was a very difficult thing for me because I love this little kid, I love this sweetheart of a kid, and I'll tell you there were times at Christmas where I, when I thought this must be how stress kills. <laughs> this must be what it does. Because I, I really I felt like this elephant was sitting on my chest. And I and, and I did everything that I know that you tell me to do. And finally I had to admit, I was powerless over this feeling of this elephant sitting on my chest. But I also knew that it would be better. I also knew that there would be a restoration there. When I first went to my meetings, this woman came up to me afterwards and said, you'll never get better until you can admit you're sick yourself. And that... You know, that really, I found that to be so annoying. But, but I called my sponsor and I said, you know, this woman keeps telling me that I'm insane. And she said, well, think of it this way. Have you ever been sick with anger, sick with fear, sick with resentment and rage? And that I could relate to. That insanity I could relate to. Because this disease, as a friend of mine used to describe it, it just hollowed me out. It just hollowed me out on the inside, I think. Not all at once, but day by day by day. And interestingly enough, this little child, this number six of mine, when he was born, when Rick and I were in the hospital, I had a lot of my kids naturally, and it started out when I had my second one in Georgia, because they didn't have anything. I mean, they had this shot they gave you right before the child burst through, and I thought, well, that's kind of a waste of time. I mean, so this woman from Cheyenne, Wyoming, said to me, just have them naturally. Just all you do is just pretend like there's this candle in front of your mouth and don't blow it out. So that's how I had my second child laying in this hospital in Georgia by myself, trying not to blow out this candle, which I had already imagined was the only light left in the living world. So, well, you know, it didn't seem so bad. So I had the third one naturally, fourth one naturally, fifth one. You know, they just come fast. It was never a big deal. But number six, this little number six was tough. And he wouldn't come, and he wouldn't come, and he wouldn't come. He was in the midst of alcoholism. Of course he wouldn't come. Who would want to be born into that?
1: <laughs> that
0: kid's smart. So he wouldn't come, he wouldn't come, he wouldn't come. So finally I said to, to Rick, they'd call that anesthesiologist. Come and give me an epidural. This is goofy. I mean, this is just crazy. Who needs this stuff? I mean, this is prairie woman stuff. I've already done it. Why, you know, what's the point? <laughs> He took off his green, you know, whatever that green thing is they gave him. He ripped it off, and he said, if you want to endanger your life and the life of your child, go ahead, but I won't stand by and watch it. And he threw it right past me, and it landed in the chair. And as he walked off, I thought, I'll never, ever, ever allow that person to get close to me again, ever. I will build a wall, and I will never let him get in again, ever. And then I'm going to take these six kids... Now that is a damaging, th- and I did that consciously, absolutely consciously. I vowed that I would do that. And that building up of walls is the co- very kind of thing that I did that I most need undone. That kind of insanity, that kind of inhumanness, those are the sort of things that I believe happened to me over a bit day by day i would i I would become so defensive and you know i really didn't want to live that way because i've never been a walled-in person i've never been a walled-in person i've always i've always had this idea of the kind of woman that i that i really want to be still have that vision today and that's the insanity of alcoholism it robbed me of that dream of myself it took from me everything that i've ever really wanted in being a woman which was compassion, generosity, love, laughter, grace, a woman of grace, spontaneity. I watched and planned everything that I said and that I did. And it's through this program, through a loving God and through you, watching and listening to you, that all those things have been restored to me. All those things have been restored to me not that I am who I think I have the possibility and hope of becoming, but you gave me back my vision. This program has given me back my vision of the kind of woman I believe that God has always invited me to be. Alcoholism stopped me dead in my tracks. I walled myself up trying to keep away the effects of this disease, and I couldn't do it. And I I couldn't do it. I used to tell this joke about... um, it's not really a joke, it's, a, it's an education story about the day that the block of marble was delivered to Michelangelo's home and he took it out in the backyard and day after day he chipped away at it until finally he had fashioned the statue of David and a little neighbor boy had watched him week after week perform his uh, artistry and finally when, he was, when the statue of David was completed the little boy came over and said to Michelangelo how did you know that guy was in there? it's really an old story for teachers but you know that's what I always thought I always knew inside me there was somebody better there was somebody better but but it was like I was almost helpless to stop my own downward spiraling into bitterness into blaming into self-justification into anger and rage into that awful self-pity which is anathema to me that self-pity and feeling sorry for myself I believe, too, that what you gave me back is my sense of value. Because usually people restore things that are of value. And that's, for me, the restoration has come. That one more time, I have begun to see myself and others as being of worth and of value. You know, when Michael was still playing football, one day he called me because he, of course, left practice in a rage. And he called me in, in tears, which is a big hook for me. And he said... Pick me up at the UDF. It's like a stop and go in Cincinnati. And I'm making pork chops for dinner. And all I needed to hear was that voice. Pick me up. Pick me up at the UDF. I hung the phone up. I had my apron. Grabbed my keys and ran out the door. And then as I got in my car, I realized he never told me what UDF he was at. (laughs) So I'm driving from this UDF to that UDF to that UDF. And then it struck me. This is insanity. I left my pork chops on. I have no idea what UDF ate. This is insanity. How quick I am to get sucked back into that insanity! I turned around, went home, took the pork chops off. They were very well done, and I sat down quietly and I prayed. I prayed. That's the kind of things that happen to me. That's the kind of things that happen to me. Unless I really, real—I mean, I just have to simply pay attention. I simply have to pay attention, and I need you to pay attention. I need you to pay attention. This past summer, a woman that um, is in the program and whose life for her has become very, very unmanageable, she came to visit me, and I was sitting out on my porch, as I do in the summers, doing a jigsaw puzzle, mindless. I used to make fun of people that did jigsaw puzzles. Now I'm doing them. That's pretty scary. But I sit out there with my little glass of iced tea, and I do these little jigsaw puzzles, and I have on little music on the radio, And she came up the steps and she said to me, this is what I want. I want to sit on a porch somewhere and drink iced tea and do cheeksaw puzzles. And you know, I knew exactly what she meant. I knew exactly what she meant. Because finally, I believe, after a long period of time, what once would seem strange and odd to me, to live peacefully, to live peacefully, you know, is the payoff for this program. No matter what's going on outside of me, to to come to some sense of knowing that there is restoration in my future and that God will bring that to me, it's a terrific hope for me, a terrific hope for me. The possibility of becoming that woman that I have always wanted to be and that I believe God has always invited me to be. That's what I love about the step that's what I love about step two. And I know for me, the way that I reach that is by actually making a decision every day to turn my life and will over to the care of a a loving God. You know, um, our book again says, we made a decision, a commitment, to take all of our concerns and feelings, worries, fears, resentments, loves, dreams, wishes, thoughts, choices, and relationships in short, our will and our lives, and place them in the care of the God of our understanding. I used to think, and this comes out of my old, this comes out of my childhood, I used to think that if I prayed enough, if I said enough rosaries, if I lit enough candles, if I said the novenas that I was taught, that I could avoid life that somehow God would like magically pick me up and everything that you were dealing with, like, you know, uh, sickness, death, unemployment, wouldn't happen to me. See, I could avoid the whole thing. That's what I used to think, that people that really prayed enough, somehow everything always turned out in their lives. Um, And what I discovered, what I discovered as I began to make a decision each day to turn my life and will over to this God of my understanding The God of my understanding began to change. The God of my understanding began to change. Because I used to hold on to this idea of a God of success. That if you did everything right, you followed the rules, everything would would be fine. And what I have come to believe in is a God of failure and a God of brokenness. A God who does not help me, nor a God that wants me to avoid life but a God who jumps into life with me. A God who sits with me as I walk through the joys and the sorrow of life. That God through this program invites me to lead a full life but never alone. Never alone. My mother has this prayer in her refrigerator that says, if you reach up far enough, if you reach up As far as you can, God will reach down the rest of the way. And I believe in a God that meets me exactly where I am. And that for today, February the 8th, 1997, I am enough. For today, I am enough. And what that has done is it has led me to believe the same thing about those people around me, particularly my children that for today, on this particular date, my children are enough. They don't have to change. They don't have to get good. Wherever they are today, they're right on time, and that's enough. Now that kind of understanding is different for me. It's just, it's really different for me. I believe that God invites me every day, and this is a theme, that I'll probably repeat it between now and when I'm finished, into an intimate relationship. I really believe that. And when I'm driving over, when I'm leaving this rehab, for example, and I'm driving over to the west side of town and I'm not really sure where I'm going. And all these couples, you know, these couples are all in cars ahead of me, the mom and the dad, the mom and the dad, the mom and the dad. And we're all in this big caravan and I get lost, of course, because I'm I don't know I was looking for a radio station. <laughs> anyway, I got lost. I didn't uh, Anyway, so now I don't know where I'm going and I'm by myself and I say, Well, this is great, God. This is great. Everybody's a couple and I'm by myself one more time. I gotta do this all by myself. And <laughs> I'm going to the west side of town. I don't like the west side of town. They'll probably do the meeting wrong. They'll probably be late. And I'm driving and I thought, How do I do this? I'm not alone. And I, this is so hokey, but this is what I did. I put my hand out and I said, alright, you got me into this? You're going with me. You're going to be my couple and I'm just going to hold my hand and I'm just going to imagine that you are holding mine and you and I are going to make our way over to the west side of town and we're not going to get lost. And when I walk in there, you're going to walk in there with me and maybe they won't see you, but I'll know you're with me. And every time that I run into this missing child, whatever it is, I visualize someone with me. Not a God that that says, oh, get out of the way. No. A God that sits with me in my grief over a lost child. And a God that sits with me when I am you know when I am lonely. And a God also that sits with me when I am so filled with joy and gratitude that I think my heart is going to burst. I believe that I am invited into an intimate relationship with this God of my understanding. And that is something so very different from this magician that I once believed in as a child. Um, <clears throat> I think that for me, you know, that... that I don't think the promise of Al-Anon has ever been that we're going to avoid stuff. I think the promise for me has always been that we're never alone. That we're just never alone. Shoulder to shoulder. We, we walk through this together. And that, to me, is is the big message. That, to me, is the big message. I have this friend in Washington, D.C. I went to visit her, and we went to visit her sister. And her sister lived in a little white house with a picket fence, and she had this husband and two darling little children and a well-behaved dog. And I said to my friend, (laughs) I said, You know, Julie, when you and I were in college together, that's what I thought my life was going to be. I never gave it a second thought. That's exactly what I thought my life was going to be. And when my life didn't turn out that way, I thought it was the world's greatest tragedy. And what I have discovered is this, that I believe in a God that can bring good out of evil, and I believe in a God that can bring serenity out of chaos, and I believe in a God that brings hope out of despair. But I have never gotten there unless I have gone through the despair, and I have walked through nights of grief. But there is always another side for me that the God of my understanding, that the God of my understanding walks with me through that. And so what I do is I get up real early in the morning, um, at about twenty or five, and I've worked this a million different ways. But the way that works for me today is. I get up out of bed and I walk right downstairs cuz I used to try this in my room and I just fall back asleep, you know, and I drool all over the <laughs> So I get up and I go downstairs and I sit very quietly by myself in the living room at 25 in the morning. And I make a decision that for that day I'm going to turn my life and well over to the care of God. And then I do some, you know, I do my reading for the day and do a little more and then I just simply turn the light off and I sit quietly for about 10 minutes. And that's how I've just, you know, that's that's what works for me. Um, do you have 12? I think what I'm going to do is just stop right here, and, um, and then we'll go for lunch for one hour. And if we could start again at 1, then I should be
1: a little further along. <laughs>
0: Are you guys uh, busy for dinner? <laughs> I have too many stories. Up with this um, for me for this step three um, really is you know you know the importance of making a decision even when I really don't feel like it sometimes you know um, I'll hear somebody um, in and say well I don't really feel like that and I think who cares <laughs> I mean, really if I if I only did what I felt like doing I, I would never get up off the couch I would just sit and read all day long <clears throat> so for me to make a decision means just simply that and as I said even though it goes against my nature sometimes because, man, I want to get in there and fix it and scrub it and and shape it up. Um, that's what I have to do, and I have to do that each morning um, and make that decision. One time um, when Rick and I decided we were going to take the, we decided we'd do something fun for the kids, and we were going to take them to a place called Clarksville, Indiana, to this water park. It's right across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, and somebody had told us about it. But I didn't want to tell the kids we were going to go because oh, then they want to bring friends or then they fight who's going to sit where and what, and they all want to bring everything, every toy they've ever owned. So I said, I have an idea. Let's just pack the car the night before with their pajamas and with their little bathing suits and little towels and we won't tell them where we're going. And we'll just that morning say, hey, let's get in the car and go somewhere. And, and we'll axe all that stuff, unnecessary stuff. So that's what we did. After they went to bed, we packed the car with little... You know, inner tubes and, and their pajamas and blah, 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 and hit them under the seats and stuck them in places where they couldn't see them. And the next morning I said, hey, I have this great idea. Let's, uh, let's, let's all go, um, get in the car and we'll go to this wonderful, uh, we'll go on a picnic. Uh, well, they didn't want to go. <laughs> I can't go on a picnic. I just want to play baseball today. I know. I hate driving in the car. It's so
1: hot. <laughs> and you know what irritated
0: me about it was, I thought, Oh, my God, if they only realized what I had planned for them. I have this wonderful, we have this wonderful, wonderful experience planned for them, those idiots. And all they're doing is griping and, and not believing that I, I,
1: only, I only want them to have fun.
0: So eventually, of course, we got them all in the car, and and they had the time of their lives, you know, at this water, this dangerous water park. You know, my kids, anything that can maim or kill you, my kids love, you know. Let's, hey, let's hang on this trapeze and go over 20 feet of water. Who cares if we don't have to swim? Let's do it anyway. When I think of the third step, I often think about that, you know, if I'm only willing to just get in the car. God's got everything packed. He's got the food. He's got the clothes, the bathing suits there. Just get in the car. I don't even have to drive it. I just have to sit there and remember that God is going to take me on a wonderful experience. And all the kicking and screaming, for me, is just a waste of time. All I need to do is to make a decision to put my life and will in the care of the God of my understanding. Um, I have never told this story in a microphone ever. I've only told it once and I was in Arkansas and I told it at a small workshop and I'm hoping they all forget it. And I don't know why I'm telling you the story except that you must promise you'll never repeat it because Rick... <laughs> really, it's a very personal story. I would die if it ever got back to Cincinnati because nobody knows this. Maybe five people know it. <clears throat> you know, um, since Rick has died, I have... There have been maybe... Well, maybe about, I would say maybe there have been four men who I have gone out with who I've really, really liked a lot, really liked a lot. And people have said to me, and I, and I don't go out with any of them today, people said to me, gee, it's too bad it didn't work out. And my response to that always is, it did work out. I mean, it really did work out. I learned wonderful, wonderful, great lessons from all four of these people. Just really good, good stuff about myself and how I am in relationships. And, oh, I learned wonderful, wonderful stuff. I do not regret any of those. They were great, meaningful learning relationships, just what I needed at the time. And, you know, and my prayer to God often is, God, you know what an idiot I am, you know. You must do for me what I cannot do for myself. And and that's what always happens. But there is this one particular person who I have known for a long, 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 long time, um, and I have always this guy and I have always, always gotten for years. We've always had this this wonderful, wonderful relationship, and um, and and a while ago, a, a while ago, he was he he was decided to get married, but <laughs> not to me but that was all right that was okay so um, you know as I said in Cincinnati we are always with people that we've known forever and ever and everybody knows everybody else so a group of our friends decided that they would all get together and have this enormous engagement party for this guy and I thought oh please God please God don't make me go to this engagement party oh please oh please oh please I don't want to do this please let me avoid this one. let me be out of town oh please let me be out of town well, I got the invitation, of course, and uh, I wasn't going anywhere. I was in town. And I thought to myself, who, and this is what I usually ask myself, who do you want to act like? I mean, what kind of a woman do you want to be? Do you want to be a kind of woman that's going to dodge this? You know, Do you want to be a woman that's going to avoid this engagement party because it will cause you a little bit of pain because you really are crazy about this guy? Or do you want to be the kind of woman that can get dressed, go to this little party, say congratulations, I wish you well, stay for as long as is humanly possible, and then get out of there. A friend of mine who used to do these, these beginner meetings with me at this detox center for years and years and years and years, uh, her, she was in a marriage for 33 years, and it ended. And her daughter was getting married, and her ex-husband was bringing his new girlfriend, his new young girlfriend, not that that makes a difference. But, <laughs>
1: So I said to my friend,
0: how did you get through that wedding? How did you get through that wedding? And she said to me, I made a decision to turn my life and will over to the care of God as I understood. And I, and I got dressed, and I took you know I put on a nice suit, and I looked good, was, you know, I, I made, you know, looked good, took care of myself, and I said to God, you're going to this wedding with me. Now I'll never forget her telling me that story as I'm driving to this engagement party and I'm saying to God, alright, for whatever reason, and only you know the reason, I, this is not my engagement party. Had I written the script, this would be my engagement party because this guy and I, I mean, we've known each other for a million years, we'll get along together like, I mean really, like, like peas and carrots. I mean that's, that would be us. So I'm driving to this engagement party and I'm thinking, alright God, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, I'm making a decision tonight to go along with your plan. I don't get your plan, but I'm going to go along with it. I'm just going to believe that you know it's best. So I parked my car and I get out. And as I was walking into this party, I thought, what is it that I really want to do? I want to talk to some people and really have some good, solid conversations. I want to be of service, and then I want to leave. And so I walked into this party with people that I've grown up with all my life, And I spoke to, you know, a few of them, you know, eye to eye, really, you know, concentrated on them, listened, was a patient, um, you know, listener, blah, 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 blah. And when it came time to eat, guess who plops right down next to me? The idiot. I mean, he sits right down next to me. I want to say, you idiot, sit with your bride-to-be. But no, he sits right next to me, and we're eating and yakking, as though we were going to be the bride and groom, talking, 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 talking. And finally I said, all right, God, I have done this and have walked through this, but now I've got to go home. And so I turned to this man, that I'm really just crazy about, and I said to him, is there anything that I can do before I leave? Can I get you a cup of coffee? And he said, oh, I would love a cup of coffee. And so I went and I got a cup of coffee and I brought him this coffee and I said, good luck, congratulations. And I walked out and I got to my car, and a friend of mine, this woman, she knows nothing, nobody in Cincinnati knows this, except for a handful of people. Debbie knows this. So I walked in my car. <clears throat> oh, she walked in my car, and she gave me a big hug. I don't know why. She gave me a big hug, and I got in my car, and I just cried. And I said, God, you baffle me. You absolutely baffle me. Because everything would tell me that that is the man for me. But you must have a different plan. And tonight I'm willing to go along with your plan." And that pretty much, you know, and since then, I mean, I run into this guy all the time in in the city. I mean, at Christmas, you know, I'm walking along the street. Where are you headed? (laughs) Come on, I'll give you a ride. I mean, it's just like, and I think, you baffle me. You baffle me with your plan. But I make a decision that God's plan is better than anything that I could ever come up with on my own. And, you know, and people have said to me, well, you know, maybe you'll remarry one day. Maybe I will, but to tell you the truth, I don't really spend much time worrying about that. That is something that I just turn over to God. Right now, I think of myself as being on sabbatical. I got my <laughs> hands, really? I've, I've got my hands filled right now with my life. And if, if ever something happens, it'll be, really, it'll be in God's time and it'll be God's plan. And it's a wonderful way to live. I have a friend that says, "Come on, we got to do, we got to go, we have got to make this videotapes made this dating videotape." Not to save my life, not to save my life, not interested because I believe in a God that when I'm willing to turn my life and my will over to God's care, God is on time. God is on time, um, and those are the sort of things that I do. Um, that for me, no, allow me. To bring real meaning to the third step, every Christmas since about 1987, when I uh, put away my crib scene, January the 6th, I take a piece of paper and I write down any questions I may have for the year. Where did this? Did this kid ever get into college? How is you know whatever happened here? Blah 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 blah. Did I ever end up going to Cape Cod this summer? How was it? Did my brothers and sisters, I get to go to New York City? I have a whole list of about, I don't know, 8 to 12 questions. And when I pack up my crib set, I pack up the questions in a little envelope and put them away. <clears> On <throat> December the 6th, I pull out my little crib scene and I pull out my envelope. And I get my little pencil. This is really so queer, but this is what I do. And I think, oh, look at that. It all worked out just great. And then I answer the questions that I ask in January. Oh, look at that. Oh, she did just fine. Wasn't that great? Oh, he died, but he's so happy. Oh, and, 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 I mean, you know, that's what I do.
1: Uh, I never heard from him again,
0: but, you know, I hope he's doing well. Uh, and every every December, I am reminded that all is well. That God takes such wonderful care of me and
1: my life.
0: And really, it is almost, a lot of times it's nowhere near what I what I would plan, nowhere near what I would plan, but it always works out. I believe when I make those decisions to turn it over, it works out the way it's supposed to work out for me in my life. Um, <clears throat> I mentioned to you that that my family has had a lot of there's been a lot of tragedy in my family. Actually, my oldest sister Karen has six children, three of whom have cystic fibrosis, and that she's lived with that since 1972. Um, and and there is no cure for that. Um, my my one brother, um, my youngest brother John, who lives in Providence. When he was in college, he was out um, trimming a tree because he is a lawn service. That's how he worked his way through college. And a limb fell on him, and actually he they had to amputate when he was 21 years old. They had to amputate his entire arm and his entire leg. Um, well, but you know, he's such such a great kid. He's got two, you know, he's got a fake arm and a fake leg, and, and he's just great. He's just great. He comes to Cape Cod with us, you know. He, he'll he come up um, for the two weekends that we're there, and he is a wife and a darling baby. And uh, oh, the kids, Ugh, the kids, well, when we all go to the beach, you know, and he's a big swimmer like I am. And so he'll, he'll say, okay, come on, come on, somebody come down to the water with me. And my kids look at me like, oh, do we have to
1: do this?
0: And he hands them an arm, you
1: know. <laughs> he hands them a
0: leg. And, you know, people in New England are very proper, and they all sit on the beach, and they all pretend like they're reading, and you know that they're just kind of, They don't say a word. A lot of class up there, very very composed, you know. And then my kids, well, we've been doing this for years, you know. And they drag his leg. <laughs> His arm, and then he—he's so goofy. He gets on his one leg, and his one arm, and he backs into the water, and then he starts to swim. Now you'd think he'd swim in a circle, but but he's you know, so back and forth and back and forth. He's a great kid. He's a great kid. When people say to me, "How's your brother John doing?" I have to stop and think. Why are they saying it like that? You know what? He's great. He's great. I always say to him, "John, I have to tell you this. I'll be here with a towel, but if shark, I'm not. If there's a shark." You're on your own, buddy. <laughs> so we've got that. And then last year, my my Tim, my brother's wife, my brother's young wife with three little kids, um, developed cancer. And um, started out breast cancer. And uh, we were all just really, I mean, it's just been rough, really, really rough. She's gone through a year of chemo and radiation. And in October of this past, October she's clear and we're all so thrilled and happy and everybody's really now lighting candles and I mean we're just, going, we're just celebrating all this and Thanksgiving it's, it's all over her liver it's all over her liver my mother why is God doing this to us <laughs> why does God hate me that's what she says. why does God hate me I said you know mom
1: <clears throat>
0: this is how I know this program works Because I am so, most days, I am so filled with gratitude for all that God has done for me and for my children and for my family that the thought that God is in any way involved with any heartache or hardship in my life is inconceivable to me. It is absolutely inconceivable to me. Now, I let her go with her ramblings because she's 80 years old and she's mad. She is just mad that her children are living through some of this rougher stuff. But you know, my mom's great, and she will, and has already, bounced back. But I I guess sometimes for me, and, and, and this again, you know, it says in our book, no matter what happens in our lives, we can trust that we will be guided and cared for. No matter what happens in our life. I have such a strong sense of that because of this program. December the 20th or 21st, my son had this horrible wrestling match. Didn't show up on Saturday. The next day we had a, didn't come home on Friday night. On Saturday we had a wedding, and the wedding took place in the oldest church in Cincinnati, which is Old St. Mary's down in the Over the Rhine area in downtown Cincinnati. And uh, the church is so old, it says that when it was built in the 1850s, the women of the parish actually baked some of the bricks in their ovens at home. And when I and I had never been in that church, strangely enough. <clears throat> but when I went into that church and for this lovely wedding of my nephew, everybody was leaving and everybody was leaving. And my own, my little Michael, of course, would would uh, refuse to come. Um, and but everybody, the other kids were there. And as we were walking out of church, I noticed in the back of church that there was this wonderful statue of Mary. Um, and again, I got I got I'm going to go Catholic on you. And I just that's, that's just my story. But and there's this big old statue of Mary holding her son, you know, once he's been taken off the cross. And above it it says "Mother of Sorrows." Well, wouldn't you know? I just happened to have two bucks
1: in my pocket.
0: And I said to the kids, "I'll meet you at the car. Meet you at the car." And as everybody filed out of church, I went to the back of the church, and I put my little two dollars in in the little vigil light thing, and I lit this big fat candle, and I said, "All right." I don't know what I'm going to do with this kid, but I'm giving this kid to you. I'm just going to give this kid to you, and I don't know where you're going to take this child of mine, but take this child into your arms, because I can't do any more here with him. I don't know what else to do. I don't even know where he is. Those are the things, see I'm a visual person, those are the things I need to do visually. And then I walked on out of that church. My mother says to me, why aren't you in a mental institution? If I
1: were you, I'd be in a mental institution.
0: She is so funny. I don't know. I say to my friends, why isn't she in a mental institution? I said, no. I'm not in a mental institution because of al I'm not in a mental institution because I have a phone list and because I have a sponsor. And I'll tell you, nothing really changed for me until I got a sponsor and until I did a fourth step. And that's when my life really began to change because I spent 12 and a half years asking the wrong questions. I, asked, I spent 12 and a half years asking the question, "What is wrong with him?" And I never once looked at me, never once even considered to look at me. I used to go down to my sister-in-law's, momies. so she has got eight kids, and in between us we had 15. And we used to make sandwiches. We used to have lunch together every day, smoke a million cigarettes, and talk. That's what I did for years. We used to just line up the bread, you know, and swatch the peanut butter this way, and then come back with the jelly, and then. <laughs> <laughs> And we used to talk. talk about him and what's wrong with him and how he got to be that way. And, oh, my God, his father was an alcoholic his mother's an alcoholic and his grandfather was an alcoholic. And, blah, 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 blah. and maybe it's this and maybe it's that. And that's all we talked about was him. And I remember when he was little and, and, and Dad spanked him with an Indian belt and the Indian beads went all over the floor and blah, 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 blah. And that's why he drinks today. Like, that's all I did for 12 and a half years. Talked about him. And so now you tell me that I have to take a look at my own. My own. And I've become responsible for my own recovery. From this disease. And I had to take out, you know, in one of our books, Courage to Change, it talks about how we develop over the years a murderous armory of weapons that destroys love and respect. And that's what I had to take a look at. I had to take a look at how years of trying to look good and be right, two big things, two big character defects for me, being right and looking good, you know, looking good. I had to take a look at that. I had to take a look at how my Humor, which really used to be kind of fun, had turned into almost a bitter satire that was wounding. That was wounding. I had to take a look at those things. I had this one bag of reactions that I used, and it was either I would ignore him, you know, I would, I would just absolutely not talk to him, I would give him the silent treatment, you know, I would deny what was going on, or I would be horribly cheerful. I would be horribly cheerful. None of which was a healthy response to the whole situation. I had to take a look at that. I had to take a look at humor, which for me was at one in, at one time, you know, my greatest strength and at the same time could be one of my greatest weaknesses, because I would laugh through situations that were not laughable. And what I did to him really was, it was as though I tried to take a pencil and erase him as a human being. I would ignore him. I would pretend like he didn't exist. I discounted him as a human being, and I was never, ever raised that way and the damage it did to me to live a life that was completely against the values that had been instilled into me as a child, uh, it was just extremely, it was extremely damaging. Constantly expecting a sick person to act well. I did it with my husband. I've done it with my boys. Constantly expecting a sick person to act well. You know, whose responsibility is that? My husband could only do so much. My boys could only do so much. They could only do so much. I had to take a look at that. I had to take a look at those things. You know, uh, it says in the book, the key to step four is that it be taken fearlessly, free from judgment, not intended to create guilt or diminish an already damaged self-image, but it's here for our growth and for our betterment. My One of my brother-in-laws, he's really, you know, I used to watch him, and he was getting happy, and he was just doing so well, and I knew he had a sponsor, and I knew he'd also done a fourth step, and that's one of my, that for me was a big <clears throat> that was a big inspiration for me because I wanted what he had. I wanted what he had, and I was going to a meeting. Quite frankly, when I first got in, where nobody was doing fourth steps, they were um, they weren't doing fourth steps. They were. Um, well, this one woman said to me, Catholic woman. Well, you know, we used to, we used to do examination of consciences as kids at night. Just do, do do that. That'll be a fourth step. Well, that never worked for me. I mean, for me, the fourth step is exactly what it said. I had to do the whole daggone inventory. And so what I did the first time around is I got... And because I came in with all these sister-in-laws who were in AA, you know, and I was heavily affected by that too, so I also used, you know, a piece of the big book. I kind of used... You know, trying to keep everybody happy, I used, uh, you know, a little bit of both, you know, a little bit of both. And it was, you know, it was as, it was as honest as I could get it, actually. And I and I took it to a sponsor. It's a funny story how I got my sponsor. I have the same sponsor today, as I did when I first came in. One of my sister in laws said, "You know who you should get as a sponsor? Get so and so. Get Patty." And I, I mean, I knew of Patty because, of course, she came from a family of eleven. And somewhere along the line, I I, I knew one of the siblings, and 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 my brothers and sisters had. So I called her out of the blue, and I said, "Would you be my sponsor?" And she said, "I would be delighted to." You know wh- what? What have What have you done? What What have you read? What do you You know, where are you? And I told her where I was, and she said, "You know, begin your begin your fourth, and call me when you're ready." And I called her, and 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 that's and that's uh, and that's how I really began that my first fourth step. You know, sometimes when when we're at meetings and and people say, "Well, I don't have a sponsor," see that I don't get that. <laughs> I don't I. The, I I don't get that. Only because I know how important my sponsor was to me the first day I walked in, and how important she is to me today. I have this habit. I still do it. When I talk to my sponsor, I always have pen and paper, and I I take notes. Isn't that? That's what I do. I take notes on what she says because I think she's absolutely brilliant. I take notes on what she says so I don't forget what she says. And I even go back sometimes when I can't get a hold of her and look. You know, I go back to the past. I cannot imagine not having this woman who has walked me through this program step by step, but particularly in that fourth and the fifth. She was absolutely instrumental in allowing me to see that this was what I needed to do to take responsibility and recover from this disease. Um, and that it really wasn't about judgment. It was simply, you know, what it was, was an inventory where I had to see where I was responsible in this in all of this. Um, later on, after I'd been in a few years, I did a, another inventory which I shared with my parish priest and um and the last time uh in the last one I did I did with two other women and what we did is we got a hold of some sort of fourth step inventory that came out of somewhere I I don't know um and we broke it up you know we decided that we would we would all work on it to kind of encourage each other to do a, a new fourth step because we changed a lot over the years and so um we would meet up at this restaurant, actually at the top of my street, not far from where my son was meeting with all of his friends, for completely different purposes and um, and we and I never wanted to do a fifth step with these two women. I mean I just wanted you know to encourage each other to do a good solid fourth step, but what it turned out to be, of course, is we would talk about how we were coming along our fourth step and then it just fell into a fifth step. we would be Hysterical at this Italian restaurant, talking about our defects of character, and making fun of each other's defects of character. I mean, we would be just like,
1: "Ah,
0: you do, you do that." I mean, we, it was just—it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And it took us months, really, because we got very, very detailed uh, in in this in this inventory. But what happened was actually is that we began to feed off one another's enthusiasm we began to I began to be I was very much affected by their their honesty oftentimes I would go home and dig even a little deeper Um, and it you know it just made an enormous difference in my life The, the greatest thing about it is my sponsor will say whenever I try to start talking about husband's kids she'll always say place them in the hands of a loving God be about your own recovery she'll never listen to that it used to aggravate me to no end because I wanted to whine. And she would say, place them in the hands of a loving God and be about your own recovery. Their recovery is between them and their higher power. Be concerned with your own recovery. Take responsibility for your part in it. That Now see, without a sponsor, I'd slip around that because my defective character, character, which is trying to look good, would have allowed me to avoid that important process. It also says in... Um, our book, Al-Anon, and How It Works. By looking at and accepting ourselves as we truly are, we can make decisions about who we choose to become. I had to change my mind. That's what a fourth step did for me. It allowed me to change my mind about the way things were. I have always been reluctant to see things I don't want to see. I just pretend like they're not there. I deny their existence, you know. Anything I really don't want to confront... I'm very good at ignoring it. Ignoring it. Um, People have said to me, gee, you really always do so well with the most difficult people. Well, of course, because I just choose to ignore a lot of really crazy and outrageous behavior. I have to look at that in that fourth step, and I have to be willing to see how that is really causing and has caused problems and pain in my life. And I don't have to fix or explain it in a fourth step. I just have to list it in that inventory. See, I thought before I could write it down, I had to know what, what, what's the solution. And, and my sponsor has been very good about reminding me, all I have to do is list it. It's God's business to remove it, not mine. And so I have learned to be very non-judgmental about the, these, pieces of, these pieces of myself. I just have inventory. Don't have to explain, justify, or fix. I just have to list it. You know, for a lot of years, I would allow people to define who I was to me. And a fourth step has pretty much put an end to that for me. When my husband was unemployed for years and years, he would say, uh, and it would terrify me, and he would say, you just want me to have a job so we can join a country club. And then I'd think,
1: oh, that's right. That's right. I'm so selfish. I just want to join a country club.
0: I never want to join a country club in my whole life. Why would I ever want to join a country club? I don't play golf. I'm a lousy tennis player. What? But you know, I would always take on other people's definitions of who I was, unwittingly and unthinkingly. A fourth step, a fourth step, puts you know, puts a, a stop to that. You know, I'll tell you, I always was a pretty smart kid. You know, in school, I did well. I had a lot of leadership roles, and uh, and and he used to say to me. You know, you don't have the brain God gave an anteater. I heard that once. I heard it a million times. And I used to think over a period of years, I don't have the brain God gave an (laughs) anteater. It's ridiculous. I mean, that is what the disease would do. A fourth step stops that kind of stuff for me in its tracks. And it also would allow me, for example, when my kids say to me, you aren't really warm and affectionate and hugging, I say, I know. I know. I know I'm not. I, I'm really not. To me. I mean... Fellow <laughs> <laughs> lawyer, I, that's true. I'm not. Now, there would be a day when I'd say, oh, yes, I am. You come here and I'll hug you. I, I'm not. I'd say that's true. Helping me, you know, taking that inventory allows me to see myself clearly and become responsible, as it says, about who I choose to become. Um... I was somewhere, and I'm going to make this real general because I sure don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, (laughs) but I was somewhere, and afterwards this woman, and I had spoken with her just one other time, maybe two or three years ago, she came up to me afterwards and she said to me, you have grown so much, you have grown so much, and she hugged me and hugged me and hugged me. And then after she spoke, I went up to thank her, and and, and one more time she said to me, you have grown so much, you have grown so much, and you know, I really wanted to punch her right in her straight, white teeth and say, I haven't grown that much. (laughs) And I don't know why, you know, and then I'd go to my room and write about all that stuff and share it with my sponsor. But, you know, there again, I I am just, you know, I am just who I am and I am just where I am today. And... And I'm not more or not less, I don't think, than I'm supposed to be when I give myself to this program. And that is the only way that I can really take a fearless inventory. See, morality to me means being human. To be moral means to be human. How am I supposed to be acting as a human being? And that's what I have to look at in an inventory. What are those things that I do that are human? And what are those things that I do that are really inhuman? And that's what I... That's that's. That's what works for me. Alcoholism, I lost sight of myself. The fourth step gave me some vision back. Um, And the other thing I want to say about the fourth step is, and and some of you know this, I'm very particular about the meetings that I go to. And I say that because I really believe that this, when I first came into Al-Anon, I was very concerned about my husband and if he really was a true alcoholic, or maybe he's not really an alcoholic, maybe he's more of a drug addict, and where does that all fit? And and the woman said to me, Has your husband's drinking ever caused a problem in your life? I said a million times, and she said, "Well, then you're where you're supposed to be because this is a program for you." And and that I don't know that I've ever lost sight of. This is a program for me, and when I go to meetings, the pronouns that I like to listen to are I. This is what I'm doing. This is you know this is how the third step worked in my life today, not he, they, she. Uh-uh. I like to hear the I. Strength, hope, and experience—that's all. Not judgments, and 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 not advice. Um, those are the kind of meetings that are helpful to me. I'm no longer willing to allow other people to define me, and that's what the fourth step has. That's the freedom that came out of the fourth step for me. And I've also learned over the many, many years that it's okay for me to simply say, "I don't know," I don't know, because there is a lot that I don't know about me. There's a lot of mystery involved with me. That I may never know, but all I can do right now is the best of my ability. Take that honest inventory, and and you know I didn't know that I. It's a funny thing because I really didn't realize that I wanted to take another uh, fourth step until about a year ago, and um, and I heard a woman talk about that she found it, ne- it was well, that she found it necessary to do a new fourth step. And as soon as she said it, there was something in me that connected with what she had just said, and I knew that triggered in me. Um, it triggered in me knowledge that, that that was something that I needed to do again. Um, to admit to myself, to God, to another human being the exact nature of my wrongs, for me, that's strictly taking responsibility and going public. That, for me, is what the fifth step meant: going public. It's one thing for me to write all these things down and list them, and, and you know, and God, you know this, blah, blah, and me, but to, to go and take it to another human being and to be out with it. We say, you know, our secrets kill us. And and that, for me, has always been so true. For me, a fifth step was the absolute decision that I was serious about this. It was more than just sitting at home and and writing, you know, journals. It was about standing up and saying to somebody outside of myself, I'm ready to take responsibility for my piece in this. Um, I work with a teen group at school, and one of the little girls, one of the senior girls, this was a few years ago, when we were talking about alcoholism as a disease, she said to me, I hate when I go to Alateen and they say alcoholism is a disease like, um, oh, like, like um, um, cancer or rheumatism. Or, and I said to her, Katie, what would make better sense to you? And she said, it would make better sense to me if they said alcoholism is a disease like rabies. And you know, and I understand what she means. Because it, it, it got all of us. It, it really got all of us. I did not marry a schmuck. I married a wonderful, intelligent, brave, funny, courageous guy. And he married a naive but well-meaning woman. And that disease, it, it did its work on us. It did its work on us. And I have to remember that. And that's for me what the fifth step is about. When I think of the fifth step, I think of stepping outside of myself and watching a movie of my life and then asking the question, can I love and forgive this woman? And I have never done that when I, have, when I have said no. I don't understand why that crazy woman did this, ever. Every time I step out of my own life and look at it with love and compassion and forgiveness, I can forgive myself. And I think for me, the fifth step brought freedom of forgiveness for me. I can look back on who I was and what happened, and I can forgive me, and I can begin to forgive me. Um, our book says we try to identify the exact nature of our wrongs, the motives or patterns behind these shortcomings, recognizing that many of our past errors were merely symptoms of an underlying problem or weakness of character. <clears throat> when I did my fifth step with my with my sponsor. Um, She fixed me some tea. And we sat down in her home and had tea. And I gave her everything that I had. And throughout my fifth step, she would nod her head at different points and say, that's the disease of alcoholism. Oh, that's the disease of alcoholism. Or she would say, oh, I know that story. I've tried the same things. That's the disease of alcoholism. And she made it so clear to me that so many of these things that I had listed in my inventory were things that I had brought into the relationship with me. And alcoholism worked almost like miracle Grow on my, my character defects. <laughs> really. They just grew, and I mean, my sense of drama, exaggeration, looking good, being right. They just, woo mushroomed and spread all over the place. And she allowed me to see that. She also allowed me to see that I have always, I love my mom and dad, and I watched very carefully growing up my mother, she is a tough woman. She's this wonderful, red-haired Irish woman who uh, pulls no punches. And she was always in charge of running the house because my father was always out, you know, chasing the fires down, get getting interviews, you know, trying to find death. Uh, the murder before the cops did and getting the first hand, I mean, that was what my dad did. And then he would come home and sit down and, and tell us all these exciting stories. And my mother, you know, she'd be in doing the dishes or whatever. And that worked for them. That worked for them. And I think, you know how sometimes they say that, that women marry their fathers? I think I wanted to be my father and I wanted to marry my mother. And so what I did was, is I looked for somebody that would take care of all that stuff while well, I sat in the living room and told my children all these wonderful stories. Let somebody else worry about disciplining my kids and, you know, and fixing the dinner and all those, all that minutia that I hate and, I'm, and am unwilling to do. I really had to take a look at that. I don't like to, you know, one time I spoke out in California and... Um, I was just really looking forward to going out in the sun and by this wonderful pool. And when I got down there at ten o'clock in the morning, people must have gotten up at the crack of dawn and had laid all their towels all over every available chair around the pool, although they weren't there, and thrown their room keys, you know, and like saved these chairs. And I thought, oh my God, where am I in a convention? <laughs> I, oh. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I was. But I'm kidding. Anyway. So what I did is what I always do. I found this woman. She wasn't a woman. She had her head completely shaved and she had a big tattoo on the side of her head and she had a ring in her nose. Now see, I know that woman will do for me what I will not ever do for myself. So I went up to her and she had this chair next to her with a towel and a room key and a book. And I said to her, gee, there's nowhere to sit. Is somebody, is somebody sitting there? And she looked at the chair and she said, not now. And she, she took...
1: <laughs> now, see,
0: I knew if I sat next to that woman, nobody would ever question my being on that chair. And nobody did. I sat there all day long in the sun, got this wonderful, you know. That's the kind of stuff I do. That's what I did to my husband. I wanted him... My dog... Um...
1: <clears throat>
0: my dog bit the neighbor last week. He didn't really bite the neighbor. He just scratched the neighbor, broke the neighbor's skin. But really, why did the neighbor... Well, at any rate, i got to get rid of my dog. I don't like the dog anyway, but it's just going to be a pain in the neck to, get, to give somebody this dog. Because it's, it's kind of a vicious dog.
1: But I, I said to somebody, you know, maybe we
0: should get... The kids love the dog, and so I said to the kids, maybe we'll just get a new dog. And somebody said to me, what kind of dog are you looking for? And I said, well, I, I think I'm looking for a dog that would be good with kids... And yet will kill all my enemies. And, and when I said that, I realized that was always what I was looking for in a husband.
1: Somebody, really, <laughs> anyway, somebody
0: that would be good with kids, but would kill all my enemies. <clears throat> That's the kind of thing that that fifth step uncovered for me. The, the responsibility I was giving somebody else, and it was never their responsibility to begin with. What a thing. Here, you take care of all these unpleasant parts of my life that I don't want to deal with, so I can just go off and have no responsibilities and have fun. You know, I always, you know, say, oh, I don't care. I don't care. Oh, yeah. We, and most times I don't. We were talking about that at lunch. Where do you want to eat? I don't care. And truly, I really don't care. But the other side of that where it becomes dangerous for me is if I'm unwilling to make decisions, I can never be held accountable for what happens. I always let myself off the hook. And I did that to him all the time. I did that to him all the time. And that was a large part of the exact nature of my wrongs. I gave somebody else responsibility that was not there. Um, just not wanting to grow up, just not want, wanting to grow up, I suppose. Um, and I had to, uh, I have to forgive myself for that stuff. I have to forgive myself for that stuff. I just out with a guy that I liked a lot. It, it ended, started up again, it ended, it started up again, it ended. I mean, how many times I thought to myself, how many times do you have to jump off this bridge before you rem- before you believe you're going to hit the water? But, you know, and I felt very badly about that. Why did I keep walking back into that relationship? Why did I keep walking back into that relationship when the signs were there, that there was trouble? Why did I do it? And I have to stop myself sometimes and remember the reasons I do those things and allow myself the forgiveness of who I am. There are times in my life when I do get hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, and I I make bad judgments. And I probably always will. The fifth step tells me that I have to be willing, I think, you know, to admit the exact nature of my wrongs, and then to become entirely ready to have God remove those things, to have God remove those things. You know, uh, one of my kids went away to Europe. At my, uh, one of my kids went away to Europe for a semester. To, to Luxembourg. It was part of her school thing. It was a tremendous opportunity for her. And when she was over there, of course, she still dates the boy back in the States, and they wrote back and forth and wrote and wrote and wrote, and finally she decided to break up with him because she was really, I don't think she wanted to be tied to this kid in the States while she was spending six months over in Europe. So she emails me, and she says, Mom, I broke up with him, and he told me that his mother said I was emotionally sick. <laughs> All this crap, you know, and I wrote her back, and I said, So what? <laughs> so you're emotionally sick. I mean, you know, come on. So, I mean, take an inventory, admit to your wrongs, and then forgive yourself for it. You know, what have you done wrong here? Make an amends. But my God, we are at all at any given day of the year a little emotionally sick. What the heck? I said you came. You know, you came out of an alcoholic home. What's the? If, you know, I spent about one minute worrying about that one, personally. But, you know, I just, you know, wrote back, blah, blah, blah. I didn't tell her what to do. She writes back and said, I knew you wouldn't give me advice on what to do. You never do. And I love it and I hate it. And that's true. <laughs> and I love it and I hate it. So, um... <clears throat> I one and I'm done with this. <sighs> Our character assets can form the basis of a life centered around self-love and self-care and we recognize and admit their importance. Our character assets can form the basis of a life centered around self-love and self-caring if we recognize and admit their importance. This is a dangerous thing I have found in Al-Anon. The very things that I used to list, the very things that I still do list on my inventory, understanding, compassion, and forgiveness. Sometimes I am called on those very things, the very kind of woman that I want to be, and and accused of still being sick. Now, this is just for me. <clears throat> I love when people say that, because you know they really don't mean it. They mean it's really for all of you, too, <laughs> if you're smart enough to listen. <clears throat> you know, um, I was at a dinner one time, to make this really fast. I was at dinner one time, and and again, I'll make this general. I really don't mean to offend anybody, but just sometimes when people say certain things, it just strikes, they may, probably mean nothing by it. It just strikes me sometimes differently. And um, there was a person next to me who, and this was, you know, a, a program kind of dinner, wasn't getting served and wasn't getting served and wasn't getting served. And I said to him, do you want some of my food? And he said, whoa, oh, you can sure tell you're an Al-Anon. And I thought, well, you know what? If being an Al-Anon and being in recovery means that I'm no longer generous, it means I'm no longer willing to share, that I'm no longer willing to reach out and help, then I really don't would, I wouldn't want any part of that kind of a program. That has never been what I have heard Al-Anon is about. I believe for me that Al-Anon is about becoming that kind of woman that I know God invites me and wants me to be. And that will always be a woman who is compassionate and understanding and generous and who always is willing to walk with you, not take over your pain, but walk with you in your pain and to listen to you patiently and and to allow you to cry on my shoulder I believe that's part and parcel of the kind of woman that I want to be in recovery. And sometimes I was somewhere with this other woman in the program and she was freezing. We were in air conditioning and I said, take my coat. And she said, you're still sick. And I thought, where does that goofy stuff come from? When, where, 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 where has this gotten confused in our minds? If I do a fourth and fifth step, that confusion probably is, is kept to a minimum. Um, I'm ready to do step six, but why don't we take this break? Right? Shouldn't we take this break now, too?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: No. <laughs> should we take a break, or should we go, want me to do a little bit longer? Yeah. Let me just do a little bit longer, and then I'll give you this break at 2.15. Oh, yeah, because we didn't start till 1.15. Became entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. <clears throat> I have a sister-in-law, and some of you have heard the story before. I have a lot of sister-in-laws, and I love them. I love them. When my own sisters didn't live in town, these women were, were and still are. Sometimes I just call them my sisters. Um, Rick has five sisters. Four of them are in AA. And one of them really is, is, she's just great. I mean, she's not an alcoholic. She's just great. Four of them are in AA. They're terrific. They are terrific. One of them said to me, whenever I go to an AA convention, I always go to the Al-Anon speaker. And I said, really? Why is that? And she said, oh, it makes me so grateful I drank. Laughter. You know, I have learned not to ask. What do you mean?
1: <laughs> okay.
0: The danger for me has always been, particularly for me, and maybe you can relate to this, is that in that situation, I almost got missed. You see, if you had come to visit me and made your way up this long, winding driveway with the with the wonderful uh, little quarter horses grazing, and come up to my home that overlooked the Ohio River and the hills of Cincinnati. And I would have come out with this Joan of Arc smile plastered on my face as though my life was everything I could ever have wanted and hoped that it would be. And you no more would have gotten close to knowing the real truth of the fear that I lived with every day, never knowing what was going to happen next, never knowing if I could feed my kids. If I could feed my kids, didn't know what was going to happen next, I would never have let you near that. And so the danger for me is I always come that close to getting missed. I come that close to believing that it's not my disease, it's somebody else's, and there's nothing wrong with me. And that's why I'm picky about my, my, my meetings, because I know this disease is progressive and fatal. For me, for me, I may not go from cirrhosis to the liver, but I'll tell you what, I have seen us go with no recovery, bitter and blaming other people for our lives, and lonely and lonely and I don't want to die that way I don't want to die that way in December when I had this elephant sitting on my chest I had a new awakening and I thought, ah, this is how stress kills this is how stress kills my God, how long can you walk along with an elephant on your chest this will kill you this stuff is bad this stuff is really bad and I see women who no longer come to meetings because of one situation and I don't want to do that I have a woman in my parish and I see her on Sunday morning with her son, and she's got that. she's got that Joan of Arc look, and I know that Joan of Arc look and it's oh, nuts, no, it's not going to kill me no matter what. And you know I, what an awful way to go, Lord in heaven, what an awful way to go. I don't want to go out of here biting a bullet. I don't want to go out that way. You know, I really didn't need Al-Anon. I could have done it without Al-Anon. but what you have shown me is the price that I would have had to pay to do it just by white knuckling it through the situation. When my little son, Michael, was in this rehab program at Jewish Hospital, um, I had to go to these parent meetings, and eventually we had to have the meetings with the kids, you know. So now here we are, the parents and these rotten little kids, sorry. Uh, I've never been more grateful that I had a boy than I had a girl. The girls were horrendous. I Really, my heart goes out to, to, to parents of, of female alcoholics. I'm not, the boys were like intimidated by these girls. You know, even mine, you know, who had the, you know, who had the hair, you know, theirs was purple. Oh, it was just, and I remember sitting there one night and this girl said, you, you don't know what it's like to live without
1: drugs and alcohol. You just don't know what it's like. I think you're all a bunch of nerds.
0: And I thought to myself, honey, we may be nerds, but you know, it's April, and you're the only one in the room dressed like it's Halloween. <laughs>
1: <laughs> At any rate. <clears throat> there was this
0: young, young, one young girl there, and her she was not with her mother because uh, she'd been taken away from her mother, and she did not know who her father was. She was with her grandparents, who were from Germany. And these grandparents had survived the bombing, the Allied bombing of Germany. And this grandmother said, I'm going to t- put myself she, of course, I've got her talking like an Irish woman. I'm going to put myself in a car and drive to a railroad track and wait for the car, wait for the train to kill me. And I thought, this is how this disease kills us. This is how this disease kills us. And I went up to her afterwards and I said, I get a tremendous amount of help, a tremendous amount of help from Al-Anon, and here's my name and here's my number and please call me. And, and I would, you know, just through my sharing, just share the program, you know, and how much it had helped me, and, and uh, you know, and, 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 and I think some of them, one woman came once, and she was just very angry, and she said she went to Al-Anon, and it was just a bunch of bulls, just a bunch of bull, and everybody in the room kind of went,
1: <laughs> to
0: me, you know, like, what say you now, Queen of Al-Anon? <laughs> <laughs>
1: well,
0: I don't know. <laughs> But I'll tell you, becoming entirely ready for me means that I do not ever downplay the insidiousness of this disease. I do not ever downplay the insidiousness of this disease because that will kill me. That will kill me, and I know that. The book says we are reminded that we are in a partnership with a power greater than ourselves. Our strength lies in accepting our role in our relationship with God and trusting that a higher power will play a significant role as well. And I have come over the years to believe so much in a God who will always do for me what I am unwilling to do for myself. Always. The last the last month Rick was alive. He was in so much pain. He'd been in AA and that wasn't working, and he had gotten out of that. He'd gotten angry with the construction job and they weren't letting him dig ditches anymore. And his mother had said to him, I am not lending you any more money. And some people would say, What are you gonna do? Now what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do now? And I knew that there was nothing i needed to do that it was really in god's hands and i was entirely ready to have god remove any defect of character that i had that wanted me to jump in and fix that for him you know interestingly enough um i i have to say that before my husband died it just happened that the priest who I, i always called him father death because he's in charge of grieving, and he was always like this big expert. He's like this na- national expert on death and dying. Never had a parish because he was always traveling, talking to people, you know, who had dying, you know, dying relatives and loved ones, or who had suffered a loss, and they gave him this parish. First time he'd ever have a parish in all his years as priest. It was my parish. And it was just a month before Rick died, and the week before Rick died, a friend of mine thought she had breast cancer, and uh, she didn't tell me. My mother told me because my mother and her mother were best friends. It was this big secret. Of course, my mother tells me everything. So I knew there was a healing mass. And on a Tuesday night, Rick died on a Saturday morning. On a Tuesday night, I said, Rick, I'm going to go up to this healing mass up at the church. Um, and he said, I think I'll come with you. Now, why would he say that? I don't know why he'd say that. Because he had, that, that had not been a part of his life for years. But there the two of us were at this healing mass on the Tuesday before he died. On the Friday night before he died, we had been invited to a big party. His friends, who, as I said before were all very, very successful, very successful, his friends were. He wouldn't go. He wouldn't go. So I thought, well, phew, then I'm not going to go either. Uh, and I ran into a friend of mine, and she said, where are you all dressed up to go? And I said, well, we were going to go to a party, but you didn't want to go. And she said, and you're going to stay at home? And I thought, that's right. That's right. Why would I stay at home? So I, I, I drove on home. I'd run into her on the soccer field, and I ran home. And I said to him, you know, I think I'm going to go anyway. And he said, well, maybe I will go. And the night before he died, my husband was able to spend an evening with friends of his that he has known since he was a little boy and that he had cut himself off from. And the next day, by 11 o'clock in the morning, he was dead. Now, I don't know how all that works, but I know when I become entirely ready to have God remove those things in me, primarily the fear, that idea that I can fix it and that I have to fix it, things happen when I become ready and my experience of God is what allows me to become willing and you because again I watch you and I listen to you and I see how this program works in your life and I want what you have whatever it takes you make me become willing by your example and no matter how you know I hear some people say at the meeting well this is going to sound really dumb and I think oh please don't say that you have no idea the the people, the the men and women who have said things, men and women I've never even seen again, who have said things and shared things that have made a real difference in my life, a real difference in my life. You know, um, when I had to uh, this thing with my son Michael and this elephant on my chest, somebody said to me in December or in November, "Kathy, why don't you call this woman? She's very good." And instead of being torn back and forth, just do what she says. And for some reason, mainly because I trust this woman explicitly, I called this woman who runs a, a, some kind of a program. I'd never heard of her before, but I called her and said, could I speak with you for an hour? And I went to see her, and I uh, got 20 minutes into my story, and I said, I hope I'm not confusing you. You know, I talk fast. And blah. She said, oh, no, I already know the answer to this. <laughs> I don't you hate people like that so I said uh, and she said you gotta take this kid I and mean, you gotta send him away you have to send him so far away that if you wanted to get to him you couldn't reach him in two days and I know of a place now I've never laid eyes on this woman before and for some reason for some reason I'm willing I'm absolutely willing to believe her and God gave me the grace to believe her so I wrote down the number of the place and uh and I called it, and I thought it sounded like a horrible place. And I really wasn't very interested in it. But when this December came, and after I had made this gesture in this church, and turned this child over, that's what I did over my Christmas break. I just began making phone calls, phone calls, phone calls, phone calls, and I was, uh, I was just telling Gracie, I met a woman in um, in September, a recovering member of Alcoholics Anonymous, who lives in California. And I had met her twice before. I never still have heard her story because I always arrive late, you know, because of teaching. I always get there late, and she seems to be always an early speaker. Oh, never heard her story, but I remember her telling me that she worked with adolescents, didn't have a phone number for or anything, and I called somebody that knew somebody. that. To make a long story short, on New Year's Eve, this woman called me on New Year's Eve, and I said to her, i got to put my son somewhere. There's this place in Montana. Montana's so far away. I think it sounds like one of these feel-good self-help things I hate. And she said, I used to be an investigative reporter before I drank my career away. I'll investigate it for you, and I'll call you back. On January the 2nd, this woman that I've met twice in my whole life called me back, and she said... Because I run one of these myself, it's very quick. She said it takes me no time at all to cut through the bullshit. And and she said uh, it's an okay place. It's an okay place. He'll be fine there. You know, they keep him in school. Um, They'll get him to AA. Um, She said I talked to a somebody that I know, a professional in the area. He says they're fine. I mean, he didn't think they're the greatest, but they're okay. You know, it's not going to do any damage. I talked to a parent. She said it's fine, you know, you got to lay down the law with them and say no, you can't keep them for a year, you know, 6 months and I want him home. But she said I'll tell you what I really think because I was looking at this other place too. She said this is what I really think. I think you just ought to flip a coin and remember that God is in charge. When that woman said that to me on January 2nd, that elephant got off my chest. And that's all she said to me. I'd flip a coin and remember that God is in charge. And that was that for me. That just, you know, that was that. <clears throat> When I allow God to be in charge, I can detach and love when I'm willing to do that. My brother, the day that he lost his arm and leg was the very day a very close friend of mine died of breast cancer. She had five little kids. And um, when I came home that night from the hospital, after they tried so hard to save at least a leg or at least an arm, and they could save nothing. And I walked back in that house, and I'd only been in Al-Anon for about three, three or four months, and there he was waiting for me. And I knew that my husband wanted nothing more And to hold me in his arms and allow me to cry and comfort me. But he couldn't. He couldn't. That's to me as part of the sixth step. Being willing, being willing to to accept, being willing to have God remove from me those things that stand in my way of recovery. My husband couldn't, and I knew it, and I knew it, and it was okay that he couldn't. It was just okay that he couldn't. He was unable to console I have no right to have expectations about sick people. That's that's what I know today. I just have no right. My son, Mark, the oldest one, the one that's not really an alcoholic, <clears throat> he didn't come home for Christmas. He didn't come home for Christmas. He, 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 he emailed and said, uh, "I have I'm broke. I have no money. I've got student loans. I can't come home empty-handed. There is no way. I will not come home for Christmas empty-handed. That's that's my son. That's the best that he can do. That is simply the best that he can do. I have to be willing to let go of my idea of family. I have to be willing to let go of my idea of what Christmas should become and what Christmas should be. And that for me is an important piece of that sixth step. I went to a basketball game two weeks ago, and one of the women said, "Well, uh, where's you know now? Where's little Daniel? He's my eighth grader. Where's he going to go to school? Is he going to go to school with you?" I said, no, I think he's going to go to a different school. I think I think we're going to send him to the Jesuits. Oh, yeah, way far away, nowhere near me. And she said, well, Michael's in school with you. And I said, well, not really. And then I, you know, I come home and I think, why do you have such a big mouth? Why do you have to tell everybody your business? And then I remember this, that sometimes, sometimes our defective character work in our favor. Sometimes my big mouthness works. Now, somewhere along the line, who knows what this woman may run into, and maybe she'll remember... Christmas vacation when we were sitting at the basketball game and I told her that I had a son whose alcohol and drug use, you know, caused me to have to send them away. I have no idea the seeds that I plant. You have no idea the seeds you plant because I sit in meetings with some of you and really, you've changed my life. You have changed my life with things that you have said and things that you have shared and, and, and it's, you know, and you may think they're absolutely the dumbest things you've ever said, but I don't. I don't. I think you're absolutely brilliant most days. And you always say exactly what I what I need what I need to hear, and I never. And then when I was doing this thing, I thought, you know, I can't get in trouble if I just share my experience. And I find that that's true at meetings as well. I can't get in trouble when I share my experience, strength, and hope. It's it's only when I try to give advice, which again is anathema to me. I was at a meeting three four weeks ago, and sharing the pain of this this child and of having to put this child away and this woman looked across reached across the table and she said to me, talk about crosstalk, she said to me, Do you ever hear of a program called Tough Love? <laughs> I wanted to say to her, Do you know who I am?
1: <laughs> Isn't that terrible?
0: <laughs> no, but you know, she didn't get it. You know, she just didn't get it. To say that to somebody, when I give advice to somebody, it's like I may as well say to you, You're not doing enough. You're not doing the right thing. You can fix it. You can just... Oh, please. I never get in trouble when I'm just willing to share my experience, strength, and hope. And that's how I sponsor other women. I don't tell my women what to do. I just tell them what has worked for me. I tell them how I work these steps and what has happened as a result. And they can really take it or leave it. I never take things personally. They can take it or leave it. But, boy, I'll tell you, that is dangerous. I think somewhere we say we're forever non-professional. (laughs) <laughs> my daughter, Emily, who's in St. Louis, I went up to visit her over parents' weekend, and we were talking about, I, and I must have mentioned, actually, I mentioned Albert and Sally, and I, and I don't remember how your names came up, but I was saying what a wonderful couple you were and embodied everything that I believed to you about A.A. and Alan and blah, 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 and Emily said to me, my daughter, Mom, um, you know what I think of when I think of A.A., and I knew what she was going to say. And I said, what? And she said, I think of a bunch of people that have the answers for everybody that think everybody's an alcoholic and I think of a bunch of no-it-alls. Now, that's unfortunate because my daughter just happened to be exposed to some people who, that is, you know, they they have never understood, I suppose, you know, attraction rather than promotion. I hope my daughter's idea changes someday. But I said to her, you know, Emily, I know so many people, I know so many people in AA and in Al-Anon as well who, for them, that would never happen. You would never even know that they are in a program of recovery because they are living a program of recovery. And they don't need to talk about it or a given